Well, good morning. Now, a number of years ago, I don't know, about five years ago, when I was here, I preached a sermon on the Trinity, which I know you all remember because you all remember every single sermon you have ever heard your entire church-going life, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, Uh, probably not. But uh, I remember this particular time. I preached this, this message on the Trinity, and as part of my message, I had this line that I would go back to again and again because I wanted to kind of emphasize this point, that there, in the Trinity there are three persons but one God. And so I would come back to this three persons, one God. And I'd talk a little bit, come back to this three persons, one God. And this was kind of the line that I used and repeated throughout the entire message. Well, afterwards, somebody came up to me, one of the parents came up to me, and their child had been sitting with them in the service. And they were just telling me that uh, as I was preaching, at one point, their kid blurts out, okay, three persons, one God, we get it, move on already, right? Um, so, so I guess you got the point right? at, at some level, right? Now, you, you may have noticed, we're going through Mark, now you may have noticed that the opening chapters of Mark get kind of repetitive, especially the exorcisms, healings, and miracles. And it gets more difficult as you go to find something new to say about each passage. You may have noticed that the opening chapters of Mark get kind of repetitive, especially all the exorcisms, healings, and miracles, and it gets more difficult as you go to find something new to say about each passage. Mark, I'm sure, is being repetitive on purpose, There is something that he wants us to know. There is something he wants us to understand. And sometimes it's difficult for us with our 2,000-year hindsight because we kind of already know the story. Those of us that are at least familiar with with the Gospels, we kind of know the story. It's it's maybe difficult for us to wrap our minds around. When Mark is writing this, he's writing this in part for people who don't know the story. And one of the questions that Mark is wrestling with here is, who is this man, Jesus, who can do these things? Like, who, can, who, can, who has the power to cast out demons and still storms and heal people? And who is this man? And so Mark is coming back again and again and again to these stories because he's trying to get people to wrestle with this question, who is this man, Jesus? But he's also trying to advance a plot line of his own. I mean, the Gospels are not just random stories that have been written down. Uh, Sometimes they're not even written down in chronological order. Each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of the Gospels has its own plot line. That the author is telling the story of Jesus in a certain way, through a certain lens, following a certain plot. And there is kind of, there kind of each of the Gospels is this standalone story. And so Mark is, is not just recording a bunch of just random events. He's telling a story. And he's trying to, every time he tells a new event, I think he also, while he wants to repeat and emphasize certain things about Jesus, he is also advancing a story, advancing a plot line. And so today as we dive into Mark 5, another miracle story Uh, I want to ask the question, what is Mark doing to advance the plot line? What is he laying on the foundation that he has already built? And we're going to try to answer that question a little bit as we go through here. Now, if you go back to Mark chapter 4, just backing up a little bit, 
What we read there was Jesus tells these parables about seeds and soils and, and how from tiny seeds the great kingdom of God grows. You might remember uh, Rod's sermon on the, on the seeds and Wes was talking about planting the seeds, uh, those two messages. And how from these tiny seeds the kingdom of God will grow. And in Mark's story, it's almost like Jesus tells these stories about the seeds and then he says to his disciples, hey guys, let's take a field trip. And he takes them on a journey. And they get into a boat and they go across the lake and they encounter this killer storm as they're crossing the lake, which once again, Jesus heals. Caleb talked to us about that last week. And then they land on the other side. And here's where the field trip, if you think the storm was interesting, here's where the field trip gets even more interesting. And we pick up the reading in Mark chapter 5, starting at verse 1. This is what we read. Then they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the kills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torment me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. And let's just stop there for a minute. I want you to note the scene of what's going on here on this field trip that Jesus has taken his disciples on. They have now crossed over the Sea of Galilee onto the east coast, and they are now in a region near what, is, what was known as the Decapolis, the Ten Cities. This was a Greek territory. This was not part of Israel. This was a Greek territory. And so they are no longer in Israel, the, the nation founded on the covenant of God with Moses. This is pagan Greek territory. I also want you to notice the pigs. The pigs were unclean to the Jews. This is unclean territory. And notice this man's condition. He is possessed not by a demon, but by an army of demons, a legion. Possibly 2,000 is the, is the number that the context uh, perhaps suggests. 2,000 demons. He lives in the tombs among the corpses. He cries out. He cuts himself. He's powerful. He's uncontrollable. He's unchainable. He's like a character out of the living dead. He's not a guy you want to cross paths with. He is an unclean man with an unclean spirit living in an unclean land among an unclean people. And even though he comes before Jesus... 
and bows to Jesus. Now, some translations say he worshiped Jesus. I'm going to suggest that's a bit of an over-translation. The word is bowed. It can mean worship, but I think in this context, I think that's over-translating, over-interpreting. He bows before Jesus. He acknowledges Jesus' authority, you might say, but his declaration is clear. What are you doing here? Leave us alone, go away, you shall not pass. Go away, leave us alone. Jesus asks his name, what is your name? Now why does Jesus ask that? Well, it's not 100% clear. And I want to pause here a little bit because sometimes there's a lot of speculation about this particular act. Now, there was an idea in popular folklore around the time that in the spirit world, one of the ways that you gained authority over another spirit was to know their name. If you knew their name and their identity, that gave you some measure of power over them. And so some people think that maybe this was part of Jesus' exorcism strategy, that he had to know the name of the demon in order to have power over the demon, and possibly even the demon by naming Jesus is trying to get power over Jesus. And and that's one uh, possible way of understanding that. Uh, However, I do think we need to be a little bit cautious about that. Um, I am not an expert um, on exorcisms. I'll I'll let you in a little secret. Uh, Don't tell my students this. I'll let you in a little secret. Bible teachers, Bible school profs, don't know everything. Okay? (laughs) Don't tell us to right? So, this, so I'm not claiming to be an, an expert on spiritual warfare. That's not necessarily a field of expertise. But I think we do have to be a little cautious here about overreading what Jesus is doing for a number of reasons. Uh, one, firstly, the, the pronoun usage in this passage is actually quite confusing. The passage says Jesus asked him. Well, who is him? Now, even though probably most interpreters, and I would somewhat agree with them, think that he's probably by this point in the story talking not to the man but to the demon who is inhabiting the man and speaking through the man, it is not crystal clear uh, to whom Jesus is speaking at this particular point. It's also unclear whether legion, the name legion that's given, is the proper name of a particular demon, if it's the name the man gives himself, if it's kind of the collective name the demons give themselves, kind of like the sports team, like, you know, we're like the Oilers, we're the demons, the mighty, mighty demons, or the, we're the legion, right, that kind of thing. Or if it's just simply the way of them saying that there were many. It's really not clear. Certainly, Jesus doesn't get the name of all 2,000 demons. So there's some, there's some, um, well, there's some fuzziness there. Um, this is the only time Jesus does this. Nowhere else is this method taught in the Scriptures. And in fact, later, in a later story that we'll get, you know, in, in Mark 7, Jesus actually cast the demon out of a, a young girl without ever even meeting the girl. So I think we have to be a little bit cautious not to read too much spiritual warfare strategy into this. It may in fact be, and this is kind of where I lean, it may in fact be that Jesus asks for the name because he wants to emphasize to his disciples this man's condition. He is inhabited by a legion of demons. This man is hopelessly doomed. So I said, he's an unclean man with an unclean legion of demons living in an unclean land among an unclean people. He is hopelessly doomed. Or at least he was. Now the demons know right away that they're in trouble. 
They know. They, they sense. They know Jesus' authority. And so in a last-ditch effort to maintain, to maintain control of their domain, control of this territory, and according to a, a, a different version of the same story in Luke 8, in order to avoid being sent to the abyss, they beg Jesus to allow them to enter this herd of unclean pigs. And again, don't overread too much demonology into this. We really don't know why they did that. Uh, was it a strategic move? Was it... Was it Did they just panic, didn't know what else to do? We don't really know why they did that, but this is what they ask. And for whatever reason, Jesus lets them do this. But what we do know is it doesn't go as planned. So they ask to enter these pigs. Jesus gives them permission. They enter the pigs. The pigs go crazy and run off the cliff into the, the sea, into the lake. Now, you understand something about sea, the, the, the whole metaphor of sea in the Bible. Uh, in the Bible, the, the metaphor of sea is often used as a symbol or a metaphor of the uncontrollable chaos. The uncontrollable chaos, the depths. Right? In fact, the, the imagery of the abyss and the imagery of the sea are somewhat interrelated and sometimes used almost interchangeably. The depths of the abyss is where chaos and evil abound. And in fact, Jesus' ability to calm the sea and walk on the sea is in some ways a mirror of Old Testament passages talking about how God, Yahweh, rules over the chaos of the sea. He brings order even to the chaos of the depths. He rules even over the abyss. And so uh, we, we see this thing. And, and if that is sort of the image that Mark has in the back of his mind, then the, the pigs running into the sea, running into the abyss, seems to indicate to us that this is not just the end of the pigs. It's the end of the demons. They have ended up in the very place they were trying to avoid. They have ended up in the deeps, right, in the abyss of the sea. See, Jesus has not just set one man free, in a way, he has set the entire territory free. Now, that doesn't mean they're Christians, but he has purged the land of these unclean demons. You see, Jesus has come to invade the territory of Satan and to set captives free. He's come to invade the territory of Satan and to set captives free. And this encounter really illustrates Jesus' vision for the kingdom. He wants to reach into the deepest, darkest places of Satan's kingdom and set the hopelessly enchained people free, and Satan is powerless to stop him. Even an army of demons cannot stand against him. That's how strong Jesus is. Who is too far for Jesus? Who is too far for Jesus? I mean, sometimes we write off people who we think are too far gone for Jesus to say. We never say that out loud, but we act as if it is so. They're too far gone. Uh, A pastor friend and I were talking one day about a guy he was witnessing to and uh, he had been praying for and uh, trying to share the gospel with. And, and I knew the guy. He was a very nice guy. And we were talking about you know, the, you know, his, his talent, his ability, his character. He really was a very a good guy, good character, good guy. And at one point in our conversation, uh, Mike just met, threw out this comment. He said, he would make such a good Christian. 
And then we kind of laughed because we sort of realized what we, were <laughs> what we were saying, right? As if the goal of sharing Christ is to go out and find a whole bunch of people like us and then add more people to the club so we get more people like us, right? He would be such a good Christian, right? But what about those people who are uncomfortable? What about the person who is unclean to us? What about the person we're tempted to give up on? Are they beyond Jesus' reach? Or maybe you're sitting here today and you think you are too far gone. That Jesus can't reach you. That you've done too much. That you're too bad. That you're too enchained. You're too ensnared. Jesus can't reach you. I want to tell you that you're not. In fact, one of the most amazing, incredible things about Jesus was how he would always move towards the people that everybody else moved away from. Through his whole ministry, he moved towards people that everybody else was trying to get away from. And so he encounters this unclean man with unclean spirits living in an unclean land among an unclean people, and he sets him free. Because that's what Jesus does. He sets him free. So how do the locals respond to this miraculous liberation of this guy? I mean, this is, this is truly a wonder. So how do the people react? Well, let's pick up the reading. Verse, verse 14. We read there. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And the people began to plead with Jesus to leave the region. So the people show up, they see the man set free, and their response to Jesus' miraculous liberation of this man is to make the same request of Jesus that the demons had made. Would you please go away and leave us alone? Now, why would they do that? Now, it, possibly some of this is economic. Uh, Mark implies, you know, that the pigs being drowned in the sea were part of the issue. Jesus had kind of disrupted the local economy. We see the same thing happen in Acts 16. Paul and Silas set free a girl who is possessed by a demon, but, that, but this possession gives her special abilities. And when they cast the demon out of her, she loses her special abilities, which makes her master, who's making money off of her abilities, really upset. And that's actually what ends Paul and Silas in prison, if you know the story of them in prison in Philippi. That's why they're there. Right? Uh, so, some of it's possibly economic. <laughs> But I think more significantly, the people realized that this man, Jesus, had a greater power even than these demons that had tormented the neighborhood. Jesus was even stronger. He had greater power. He had greater authority than even his demons, which meant he was uncontrollable in a different way, but uncontrollable nonetheless. Kind of like how Batman feels about Superman. He is uncontrollable. And left unchecked, he will disrupt their entire way of life. So they see Jesus not as a hero, but as a threat. 
to their autonomy, and they want him gone. You see, Jesus not only invades Satan's kingdoms, he invades ours. Now, if I were to ask you, which is the tougher spiritual battle? The battle with Satan or the battle with humans? How would you answer? Which is the tougher battle? The battle with Satan or the battle with humans? Well, in this story anyways, it's the human realm. It's the human battle. That is, it's the human realm that is most resistant to Jesus. Right. Now, we, we live in a culture, and, and many of us are aware of this, and we talk about it, and we, we think about it, and I've been in lots of conversations about it. Uh, we are living in a time and in a culture where it seems like Christianity, the way of Jesus, is increasingly seen in our own culture as a threat, a threat to freedom, a threat to autonomy, a threat to our radical notion of personal freedom. See, we have come to see in our culture, personal freedom as a radical, yes, you can. Yes, you can. The only possible caveat is you can't hurt somebody else. But our culture's posture is, yes, you can. And who are you to tell me that I can't do something? We live in a yes, you can culture. But to follow Jesus requires us to surrender our autonomy to him. And sometimes that means not doing what our desires pull us towards. Because it doesn't reflect Jesus, and it doesn't reflect God's intent for us. But that is a threatening notion in our day. And additionally, Christianity often gets bashed as being a historically oppressive force. Look at all the damage that has been done by the church over the centuries. Now, I will talk about that in a second, but but before I do, let me just point out that the historical reality is that the impact of Christianity on culture has been overwhelmingly positive throughout human history. Um, Glenn Scrivener uh, has just written a book called The Air We Breathe. It would be a recommended read if you're looking for some reading. The Air We Breathe by Glenn Scrivener. And, and in it, he argues that many of the values that we build our culture, our Western culture on, many of those values actually have Christian roots. And in fact, if you take away Christian roots in our culture, you take away those values. Things like equality and freedom and justice. There's nothing in atheism, for example, to, uh, to suggest that those are values worth pursuing, if they exist at all. These are, Christian, these are rooted in Christian ideas Equality, freedom, justice, fairness, integrity. Now, I am not saying that Christianity is the same thing as democracy, and that's a mistake we make. Sometimes we think Christianity is the same thing as democracy, and democracy is the same thing as Christianity. It is not. But many of our values in our culture come from Christian values. And people and cultures that embrace Christ-like principles and values tend to see cultural improvement. They tend to see an improvement in freedom, justice, integrity, wisdom, righteousness, um, even prosperity, health, uh, mental health, those types of things. But this only happens when we are willing to surrender our autonomy to Jesus and do it Jesus' way instead of ours. And that is scary because we like control. 
Right? So as in this story, Jesus becomes a threat to our closely guarded autonomy. Jesus comes to free us, but we see that as a threat. And it is uncomfortable. And so we push Jesus away. Now, I want you to notice how Jesus responds to this rejection, because I think this is really important. In verse 18, it says this, as Jesus was getting into the boat, so he honors their request and he leaves, as Jesus is getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. I want you to know that Jesus responds differently to the people than he did to the demons. See, he could have powered up and demanded allegiance, right? Don't you know who I am? Right? He could have powered up, demanded allegiance, maybe done some more miracles, maybe even thrown in a few lightning strikes for good measure, that kind of thing, and forced the people to follow him. But he doesn't. What does he do? He plants a seed. Remember Mark 4? He plants a seed. He leaves this man. The man asked to, to go with Jesus, and Jesus says, no, you need to stay here, and you need to tell people how I have set you free. And you need to show people how... how I have set you free. You see, Jesus defeats Satan's kingdom from the outside by pushing it back with his power. He defeats our kingdoms from the inside by drawing us in with his love. This is how Jesus builds his kingdom. And there's a lot of pressure in the church today to power up and fight back against our culture, to use force Political force, physical force, sadly sometimes even militant force. We feel the pressure and the frustration of the world around us moving us farther and farther away from God and that it stirs up anger, it stirs up frustration, it stirs up fear, and it's tempting to want to push back with force and compel people to adopt Christian values and Christian truths. But that's not how Jesus' kingdom comes. So it's been repeatedly noted by historians that the early church broke the power of pagan Rome not by revolution, but by love and character and goodness and mercy. The church had something that people couldn't ignore and the empire couldn't stop. The lived out grace of Christ. See, whenever the church has tried to use force be it political or military or economic, might use force or might to advance the kingdom of God by force. It has not gone well with the church. You look at the, the, at the black marks on the history of the church, and there are some. The horrendous things that the church has done throughout history, and almost without exception, and possibly arguably never without exception, it has happened because the church has confused political force with the kingdom of God. And he have tried to force people to follow Jesus. They have tried to force people into Christendom with, with power rather than draw them with love. See, when the church gets this wrong, we do damage. Now, I am not suggesting that we don't speak up for truth 
and we don't stand up for justice, equality, righteousness, even freedom, that we abandon all political or cultural influence. But we've got to get this right. We push back evil with the power of Jesus, but we draw in people with the love of Jesus. And we push back evil with the power of Jesus, but we draw in people with the love of Jesus. That's how Jesus built his kingdom. The kingdom of Christ is not advanced in this age by political or social force. It grows mysteriously from the seed of changed lives, like this one man set free from a legion of demons who stayed in the darkness and told his story. And interestingly enough, you jump a couple chapters ahead in Mark. I don't want to give away the rest of the story. Spoiler alert here. You jump ahead in a couple chapters of Mark. Jesus comes back to this area. 4,000 people show up because he planted a seed that drew people to Jesus. So let me leave you with two takeaways. I call them the what and the how. First one, the what. And that is this. Jesus' vision for the kingdom is that it invades even the darkest corners of the world and sets people free. I'm so thankful that we have, even in our own church, global workers who are going into some of the dark places in the world. I just got a newsletter at the school from one of our former students. He's not part of this church, one of our former students, who's in Mongolia sharing the light of Jesus. So cool. That's Jesus' vision. He has come to set people free. He has come to set you free. There is no corner so dark, no prison so strong, no condition so hopeless, no person so unclean that Jesus can't save you, rescue you, forgive you, and restore you. He's just that strong. And the second takeaway is the how. Jesus' strategy for doing this is to push back evil but draw in people. Push back the evil of Satan with his power. Draw in people with his love and his grace. And I think he wants his church, he wants us to emulate that strategy. So certainly, where we find evil, where we find evil, injustice, violence, intolerance, enslavement, corruption, we should stand up. We should push back. But let's be careful not to push people, to try to push people to Jesus. We draw people to Jesus with grace and love and compassion and patience and kindness and integrity by them seeing the difference that Jesus has made in our life and say, I don't know what it is that you have, but you've got something and I want it. That's how we bring people into the kingdom. So have you been set free by Jesus? Well, if not, I have good news for you. You can begin that journey of freedom today. You can begin that journey today. After the service, there will be opportunity for you to pray with someone uh, who would love to pray with you. If you need to start that journey today, just at the end of the service, uh, come up to the front and someone will talk to you and will pray with you. See, if Jesus came to save this unclean man with the legion of unclean spirits among an unclean, in an unclean place among an unclean people, he can save you. He can rescue you. And if yes, if yes, yes, I've known the freedom of Jesus. I'm not perfect. I'm not. Jesus isn't finished with me, but I know the freedom of Jesus. I've been set free by Jesus. Then go and show people. 
Go and tell people with your words, show them with your life how God has had mercy on you. Push back evil with the power of Jesus and then draw people to Christ with the love of Jesus. Father, we thank you for this powerful story of Jesus going into a dark, dark place and setting free a man who just seemed like he was unsavable. And thank you for the grace that you show to each of us, how you set us free with your power and you draw us to yourself with your love. Father, for us as your church, help us to be people who do the same. Help us to be people who, who walk in the power of Jesus, who, who stand up for righteousness and goodness and truth. When we see evil, we push back against evil with the power of Jesus. But help us also to draw people with the love of Christ and give us the wisdom, Lord, to know the difference. That we would be people who, are, who live compelling lives, inviting lives, that our friends and our neighbors and our family look at the difference you've made in our life, how you have set us free, and they say, I want what you have. And we shine the light into their lives, and we draw them to Christ. Father, build your church and build it right here in Grand Prairie in this church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you once again, Brad. You just have the gift of taking texts and boiling them down, push back evil with power, invite people in with love. Uh, what, a, what a powerful message for us to take through the week uh, ahead that uh, this is our task. This is who we are. And, uh, and as we close uh, today, uh, it was interesting, I, I picked a passage that I just wanted to, to read from Ephesians chapter 4, the end of the, of the, of the chapter. But uh, before I read it, I just want to say, hey, if something that Brad was talking about today, maybe you were one of the people this morning who's saying, man, you know, my stuff is just way too far out there. And, and I hope you heard the message that Brad shared. It's not. The invitation's here for you. And maybe you've got something else that you'd like to pray for or somebody that you want to pray for. Uh, we, we always, our, our prayer team is always at the front at the end of the service. And, you know, I, I hope that you just feel comfortable that, that if you're, and I know we've, we sometimes feel like we stick out, but, but please, if, if there's something that's on your mind or your heart, just come down for prayer. Nobody's watching. They're all busy figuring out if they can get beat the crowd to McDonald's or Burger King. So uh, just come on up for prayer. And, uh, and as we close, I just want to encourage you with these words that Paul wrote. He said, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. And from him, the whole body, that's, that's all of us, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So this week, I just encourage you, go out, love somebody, work on love, and, and build up the body. Have a great week.